Welcome to the Fighting for Joy podcast. I'm your host, Jody Blick. I'm so glad you're listening today because I have the privilege of introducing you to my little brother, Dwight Nelson. When I first started even thinking about doing a podcast, he was one of the guests that I really wanted to have on. Dwight has a hard but really important story to share, and I'm so thankful that he was willing to record this episode with me. He's a serious fighter for joy, and I have a feeling that our conversation is going to help a lot of people. If you want to get in touch with Dwight or want to follow up with me in any way, please listen in at the end of the podcast when I share the best ways to connect. Well, thanks for listening in today, and here is my brother. Hi, Dwight. Hi there. Thanks for being on my podcast today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's it's really special to be able to do this with you. And I'm just I'm really grateful for your willingness to share today, because as you and I have talked about it, um, almost everyone is affected by addiction in some way. And I know um, that this conversation will be a big help to everyone listening, whether they're the ones struggling or whether they have someone in their lives struggling. So thank you so much for saying yes. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. And I, I really do hope that this can be helpful for somebody that's either struggling or, or knows somebody that's struggling, like you said. Yeah. Well, I said in my introduction that you're my little brother. You're seven years younger than me. So there's a little bit of an age span between us. Um, Dad and mom's firstborn, our older sister, Lori, died from leukemia when she was only four. So our family growing up was me as the oldest and then our middle brother, Merritt, and then you as the baby of the family. So that kind of gives everyone a picture of our family dynamic. Um, But from there, why don't we start our conversation off by just having you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your daily life. Sure. Yeah. So I'm the baby of the family. Um, growing up, you know, seeing pictures and everything of, of our family growing up, Jody always was holding me and <laughs> to be kind of a second mom. And, yeah. and I'm really grateful for that. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm Jackson's uncle and um, the baby of my family. And right now I have a little family of my own. Mm-hmm. I'm married to my wife, Jessica, and I have two little boys myself, uh, Harvey and Fletcher. And they're uh, just turned three and, and coming up on two. So they're, they're nice and young and they keep me on my toes. <laughs> but, uh, right now I'm a, I'm a teacher and a coach on an Indian reservation. I coach six different teams. I'm an AD. I drive the charter bus. There's a college on the res. I'm a professor there also. Um, so I, I stay busy doing that and try to balance the, the time of being a, a father, a husband, a teacher and a coach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have a lot of really good stuff going on, Dwight, and I'm so proud of you and just really happy about where you're at in life, and I absolutely adore your family. You know that, and I love Jessica and your boys, and I always get so excited when I get to hang out with them and play the role of Aunt Jody. Um, your boys are just a huge source of joy in my life, and I know they are for you too and our whole, and our whole family. Um, but getting to where you're at right now has been a difficult journey. Um, you've been through a lot. Our family has been through a lot. And I would guess that even now, as beautiful as your life is, as full of it is um, with all of these good things, um, that things are still not easy. Um, but from the beginning stages of this podcast, I just I knew that I wanted to have you on as a guest, Dwight. And 
I know your story will be relatable and hit home with a lot of people and you have good stuff to share, um, hard stuff, but good stuff. And so I guess I'd like you to just jump right in and have you tell some of your story and the journey that you have taken to get where you are at in life right now. Sure. Yeah, I'd be glad to. I'll try to uh, give you kind of the shorter version and, and uh, you know, fast forward through, through some things. But, uh, um, you know, if anybody would ever want to have a pot of coffee and, and hear the whole thing, I would be willing to do that also. Yeah, that's uh, awesome. But yeah, I so I'm an addict and I suffer from the disease of addiction um, from a very young age. There were some things, sexual trauma that happened and some pressure that I felt always growing up and and, and those were kind of some things that, that kind of got the ball rolling in, into my addiction. But if those things didn't happen, I'm sure, you know, things later on in life, I've, I've heard people talk about relationships that fall through or lo- loss of a job or, mm-hmm. or even the death of a loved one. There's always something that kind of starts the whole deal. And for me, it was kind of those things. Um, I'll kind of show my age here a little bit, but when I was 15 <laughs> years old, I was sitting around with a bunch of friends and we were watching TV and there was a commercial that came on and there was a commercial that basically had a person that looked rough, I would say. And there was a hot pan on a stove and they said, this is your, and they cracked an egg and they put it in the pan and they said, this is your brain. And then, you know, that it started frying an egg and it said, this is your brain on drugs. Well, one of my friends said, that's not really true. And I thought, well, what do you mean that's not really true? And he's like, well, do you want to find out? Hmm. And I said, you know what? I, I just have some shame and I have some guilt um, and, and I, you know, on one shoulder and I have some pressure that I feel, you know, to try to be, you know, like my sister and my brother. And, and you know what? I, I, I want to see what that's like. So we, uh, we went out and I got high for the first time that night. And that was when I was 16, like I said, but from 16 until I was 35 years old, uh, a progression of my disease happened and it was, it was kind of a strong one. It went from, you know, me using here and there to basically using every time that I could, uh, the obsession and compulsion was just out of control. So, um, I got to the point where, uh, later on in life, I was actually 35 years old. Um, I, I, lost control of everything L-Y in my life. And what I mean by that is spiritually and mentally and physically and financially and emotionally, everything of that sort, I was bankrupt. And I wound up um, in a camper without electricity, without water. Um, I ate tortillas with peanut butter and honey because I didn't need to refrigerate those Mm -hmm. every meal. And uh, I lived in a camper down by the river, basically like an animal. Um, it, it got to the, the, the level of, of, you know, basically living like an animal. So I got to a fork in the road and I thought, you know, should I try to get, you know, clean again or should I just commit suicide? And I was kind of leaning towards the suicide route. Um, I don't know if, if you're very familiar or those listening with suicide, but I had mine planned out. And, and that's, that's a very dangerous place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I was ready. I didn't think I wanted to try anymore. I didn't want to go on and I, and this was going to be my out, but at the same time, kind of in the back of my mind, I don't know if it was just, I've done enough research on myself to know that my condition needed help or, or if it was 
God using um, a special someone in my life that that's been kind of there helping me when I wanted them to be. But uh, I got to the point where I was I was ready to kind of surrender. Um, whatever that meant at the time, I didn't know, mm-hmm. but I was ready to give up and and take suggestions and take advice and and basically do anything that people told me to do. Um, but at the same time, in the back of my mind, I was thinking if those things didn't work, then I am going to, um, off myself and I'm going to commit suicide and I'm going to be done with all this. So that's kind of, uh, in a, in a fast forward way, what it, how it started and, and kind of where I was in the fork in the road when I decided to, uh, you know, get clean and, mm-hmm. and really do it the right way. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm so thankful for that fork in the road and, um, that you were able to, embrace surrendering and that you are here Dwight um I I love you so much and um it's hard it's hard to hear that and it's hard I'm sure for you to share but um it's important because it does show kind of the progression and um and also just how you got to the point that you finally got to um to be able to accept help and um and I'm really thankful Dwight I'm really thankful um well, so six years, right? Six years clean. Um, yeah. So I would imagine that each year of sobriety has got to be a little different, right? I mean, similar kind of to our grief journey. Every year brings its own growth and its own challenges. Um, so what what is this year, year six, um, what does that look like for you in comparison to previous years? I mean, is it getting easier? Is it still just as challenging? Or what, what does it look like year to year? Well, the, the first year, it was it was a lot of just willpower I would say not all willpower but it was a lot um it was it was a lot of just kind of white knuckling it in other words like I was holding on to just not using as hard as I could Mm -hmm. um but then I started in a program that was proven to work and and the program basically led to me led me to a spot where the obsession and compulsion to use was lifted from me Uh, just like that line that I crossed into exploration and, and dabbling into addiction, the the same line in a way was crossed when I was white knuckling it to where things were just supernaturally relieved from me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like back in the day, uh, my first year, let's say, um, I thought about using all the time. There was there was many days where. Um, I just would sit there and think and think and just wonder, am I going to make it? And now in the sixth year, I just, there's, there's many days that go by even weeks and months where I don't think about using. And, and there's, there's nothing to really credit that other than, you know, God lifting that from me, but there was a lot of work involved to get to that point. Mm -hmm. So I don't even know if you know this or not, but how many times do you think you, you desired to get clean? I mean, was it, did it, take getting into that camper by the river or were there multiple times leading up to that that you had tried and I'm just asking because if somebody's listening and they've tried and failed or they love someone who is trying and failing I mean what what would you say well you know people always describe rock bottom you know like what what is is rock bottom what's it gonna take and everything else well there's also a tolerance of pain um, some people get scared by standing in front of a judge in a courtroom after getting in trouble. Hmm. Some people um, get an ultimatum from their wife or husband, or some people just are tired of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for me, how I would describe it is this. The pain of staying the same outweighed the fear of change. Hmm. And I'll say that again. The, the pain of staying the same, just the, the cycle, the doing it over and over, the, the, the using and then finally coming to a point to get clean and then the using again and falling off and relapsing, it, it got to the point where that was just too much other than taking a new way of life. Mm-hmm. You know, where, where I was, I didn't know. I mean, I've, I've relied on drugs and alcohol to numb things out, uh, whether I was having a good day or a bad day, that was kind of my best friend, in mm-hmm. other words. So mm-hmm. to take that out of my life, I, I had a lot of fear, mm-hmm. but you know, I was just, I was tired of it. Mm-hmm. And, and it finally got to that point where I didn't really have anywhere to turn. I mean, in re- in reality, it would have been better if I would have been locked up in jail. Mm-hmm. I would have at least had three meals in a safe place and it would have been warm and you know, there was resources for me and, yeah, yeah. but, but I was, you know, I, I didn't have that. So it got bad and that's what it necessarily needs to happen. Mm-hmm. I've, I've never, ever heard of anybody. Um, and I've talked to hundreds and thousands of addicts, not one of those people thought when they woke up one day, you know, I'm going to quit, you know, things aren't, aren't going very good. You know, things, you know, could be a little bit better if I quit and everything. No, it has to get bad. Mm-hmm. It has to get real bad mm-hmm. um, for people to kind of want want to do that. And that's how it got for me. Yeah. And not only is that brutal for you, but it is so painful for the people who love you and people who love addicts and have to watch that too. But you're saying it's just part of the process. That's kind of what has to happen. Yeah. So the name of this podcast is Fighting for Joy. Um, does that resonate with you? I mean, what do you think of when you think of fighting for joy? Has has your fight for for being clean, has that been somewhat equal to a fight for joy? Or where does joy and happiness, how does that kind of tie into um, to recovering um, and being clean now? Sure. So, so my fight for joy is basically my daily reprieve. That's contingent on my maintenance of my spiritual condition. Mm-hmm. Um, the way I use drugs and alcohol, it was going to kill me. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't use on the weekends. I didn't use here and there. You know, I, I used a lot and I used all the time. So my fight for joy would be basically taking all of those things, which I, I would say is my will and, and surrendering that and, and trying to align myself and my actions and my life into God's will, which I think is true joy. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. I think joy, joy is much deeper than happiness or even sadness. I believe that a person can be happy, happy and sad at the same time, but joy kind of underlies that. Um, joy doesn't get affected by a happy day or a sad day. And, and for me and, and in my recovery, um, joy is just knowing that the battle battle is already won mm-hmm. and that this, uh, this time on earth is just a rest stop on the hi- heaven highway. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really think that, um, you know, this past week, me getting six years clean, I've experienced all those things. And I'll just kind of give you an example. I, I got a, a, a medallion that mm-hmm. had sticks on it for six years clean. And on that day I was happy. You know, I was happy to get that and be recognized for, for six years because it was difficult. But at the same time, it was kind of a time for me to remember all the, the sadness and the struggle and the damage that I've done. Mm. Um, but underlying all of that is is joy, because I know that me taking all those things out of my life, 
there's a chance for me to fall into God's will. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now that's super helpful, Dwight. Um, that's really helpful. And another topic that I want to continue to touch on throughout um, pod, my different podcast episodes is just how much we need one another in this broken world. And fighting for joy is it's easier in community with other people supporting us and reminding us of truth and encouraging us and standing with us. And um, I'm wondering if you'll share a little bit just about what community has meant to you and how you've had to rely on others to keep fighting, um, both for staying clean as well as for joy. Um, it seems like you've had a couple turning points with that, but just will you share a little bit about um, how community has helped you? Sure, community is important. Um, when I was using, I would always isolate myself. So there's kind of a, a, a saying that when you, when you get clean, there's only one thing that needs to change and that's everything. Hmm. Um, so, so I started reaching out. I started telling people that I was struggling. I started um, taking suggestions, you know, because they say that suggestions are free. The only ones that you have to pay for are the ones that you don't take. And I, I, I'm involved with some programs and I'm trying to keep it anonymous, but you can probably guess which ones. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I go to meetings and I, I talk with people that are going through the same things that I'm going through that understand me. Just me walking through a door uh, puts me um, in, in a group of people that, that completely understand um, exactly what I'm going through and what I'm struggling with. But um, not only that, I have a sponsor. And, and what I mean about that is somebody that had something that I wanted. I found a guy at a meeting that seemed to smile a lot. And he, he seemed like he had a bunch of wisdom. And I finally asked him, I said, hey, you know, um, would you help me out here? Would you be my sponsor? And he said, absolutely. Hmm. Uh, and, and he's just been kind of helping me along in other words like i remember the first time that we talked it was in a parking lot and i was i was crying i was i was struggling i was down i but i wasn't out quite yet and and he said you know what i think um your thinker is broke hmm. and i kind of looked at him and he said i'm gonna start thinking for you because your way of doing things and your best ideas and everything didn't get you very far so i'm gonna start doing that for you and and i said okay and he started telling me to do things and I started doing them. And one of the biggest things is steps. Um, you know, everybody hears about 12 step programs and this and that. And, and, uh, you know, for a long time, I thought that I was just going to pray harder or I was going to have a bigger group of people praying for me that that was going to help. And, and I believe those things are so important, but there was no action on my part really. I mean, when they say everything needs to change, instead of just sitting there wanting things to change and not doing anything about them, I, I couldn't do that anymore. So I had to spring into action. And 12 steps is a, a gradual um, way to, to basically get closer to God. Mm -hmm. and, and these steps were founded by believers in, in Christ and followers of Christ from the Oxford group over in England, which is basically guys that studied the book of James that, that, that found that um, the book of James was a short, sweet version of, of everything that, that comforts the afflicted and, and afflicts the comfortable. Basically mm -hmm. it's a, it's a, it's a daily reprieve and they started helping. Um, I think it was alcoholics back in the thirties. So um, yeah, it, it's very important for me not to isolate myself. It's very important for me to take suggestions from people that, 
that have what I want. Mm -hmm. And and what I mean by that is nothing materialistic. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is, is, is finally being able to smile, having some serenity, and then uh, um, just getting out of the, the I, I, hole that I was in. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does seem like such a turning point when you connected with your sponsor and he is a wonderful man. And, and like you said, yeah, beginning to let people in, connecting with other people who were struggling because it can be so tempting, like you said, to pull away from other people. And I think when we are able to kind of reject that isolation and that pulling away and move to, you know, a deeper connection with other people, it can be um, life saving, it can be life giving, um, and not just in addiction or for me in grief, but I mean, in divorce with wayward children in cancer treatments, I mean, whatever the hard stuff that life brings us, um, we are better able to to press on and to persevere and to fight for joy when we let other people in and we reach out um, in community versus isolation. Um, so, you know, as as we fight for joy, we all have things that hinder us. Um, we just mentioned isolation, but um, as you kind of look at um, at your your journey, um, what are what have been some enemies of joy for you? What have been or what are maybe especially now in in your um, continued fight for for um, sobriety? I mean, what can tend to rob you of joy? Sure. So I would say resentment and fear would be the mm-hmm. two big things that would rob me of joy. That kind of uh, damper, you know, things that are that are positive kind of going on because. Resentment, you know, thinking um, it was somebody else's fault, you know, blaming myself or blaming God or or the fear of, you know, this new way of life. People are going to, you know, um, help me along. I, I don't know what that's like. All I know is kind of what I've gone through and how things were before. So fear and resentment are, are, are really big, but there's things that I have to do. Um, to get rid of those things. And it just starts by doing some some things like being honest. You know, when somebody says, mm-hmm. hey, how are you doing? I don't say good when I'm not doing good. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when, when they say, uh, you know, do something, um, this is going to help you along. It's okay to say, well, why? You know, what, what what's this? What's the underlying factor that why is this going to be helpful? You know, asking questions, being willing to do things that I've never done before. Uh, being humble. I can't sit here and and say that, oh, I have six years clean. This is all me. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some work that I've done, but but I have to give God credit for everything or I'm going to get loaded again. Mm-hmm. Um, and then service to others. Mm-hmm. You know, those are some things that uh, really give me joy and help my joy continue when I see the light come on in somebody else. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There, there's, there's a few things you know, getting medallions is great, but, but seeing somebody walk through the doors of a meeting that, uh, um, they look like they should be there and to one day have them, um, in your life and you know that they have joy deep down inside that that's, that's better than any medallion that I could ever give. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's awesome. Well, let's, let's have you put on kind of your teaching hat for a few minutes and share some things that, um, that you want people to know about addiction and basically what what are people getting wrong when they are trying to help and support loved ones as they struggle or maybe what are some misconceptions and I know it's a broad question but just but just what do you as an addict want other people to know sure uh, I'd be glad to so you know when I describe myself you know as an addict and I suffer from the disease of addiction 
that really um, turns a lot of people off. You know, why would you consider addiction a disease? Well, if you look at the, the definition, here's the definition of a disease. It's a particular quality, habit, or disposition regarded as adversely affecting a person or a group of people. Basically, something that makes your life not normal. And, and, and a lot of people think that it's just choices, right? That, that every time you, you get high or every time somebody gets drunk or every, you know, it's a choice. Well, sure. But there's a lot of choices that can uh, start a disease. You know, mm -hmm. if you look at STDs, um, ask somebody with an STD if that started with a choice or not. Um, you know, there's people that have lung cancer. People are, are super accepting of lung cancer being a disease. Well, in most cases, that started with smoking cigarettes, which was a choice. So mm -hmm. I, I don't want people to get turned off when they hear addiction is a disease, because if it goes untreated like any other disease, it can actually kill you. Mm -hmm. and, and those two things are very important. So that's kind of why I, I use that and other people use it. So I hope that that's helpful for somebody getting kind of over that mm -hmm. hump of, of understanding what addiction really is. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the, the, the I guess, single, single thing about addiction that, that really um, is hard is because it affects other people. So the lying and the cheating and the stealing and the disappearing, those kind of things of addiction, um, people have a hard time understanding, which, you know, as an addict, um, we do too, mm -hmm. you know, we don't understand necessarily why we lie all the time and cheat and steal and, and do those kind of things to loved ones, but we suffer from a disease, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that's, that's why, but, but no addicts, they're not really bad people doing bad things or, or they, they lack morals. They're just sick people that mm -hmm. do bad things. Mm -hmm. And, and, and most of them are just untreated. Mm -hmm. So the disease that I have, there'll never be a cure. But it can't. It is treatable, and and you can get to a point in your life where it's arrested, and then you can begin life, and and begin to do things that that never were possible. But uh, you know, again, um, brokenness is necessary. Like mm -hmm. I was saying before, I've I, I haven't heard anybody that that made drastic changes in their life, uh, taken out uh, drugs or alcohol or anything from their life if if they weren't completely broken. Mm -hmm. So if, if somebody is, is loving an addict and, and not understanding why they're changing, it's because it's not bad enough yet. And mm -hmm. I'm sorry, it, it's tough to hear, but until that happens, uh, until that fork in the road appears, there's not going to be really any, any change. So just keep praying and, and keep, you know, uh, allowing God and, and everything to, and the spirit the Holy spirit to intervene and do their thing. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, I mean, yeah. I would say that was one thing that we didn't understand as a family was just that it wasn't bad enough for you yet. It was bad enough for all of us, but it wasn't bad enough for you yet. And so we were wanting to hurry it up, um, you know, just for our own comfort, right, in some ways. But um, I think it would be helpful um, for other people if we could get a little bit more specific and vulnerable about, about our own family. Um I mean, as, as we look back, I mean, what did we do right as a family um, in our desire to help you as you struggled or um, what did we get wrong? And if that's too general, I'm fine if you just answer that for me as your sister. I mean, what, what was helpful and what was not helpful? Sure. So I thought not only you, but, but my, my family, mom, dad, you know, 
Brother Merritt and everything. I, I thought that you guys did a really good job hating the sin but loving the sinner. Um, you guys didn't like the things that I was doing um, or not doing. And uh, you really loved me through the whole time. I mean, there was there was a lot of times where where I, I felt like uh, that you guys were doing that. And that was very important for me um, because I didn't really know what was going on myself. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I was wondering the same things you were wondering, yeah. but I was the one that, that was, you know, front and center and, and kind of the star of the show. Mm-hmm. But uh, I thought you guys did a really good job. I thought you guys prayed. Mm-hmm. And 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 you you know you did that often whether you thought it was helping or not mm-hmm. um and and that was helpful later on because you know finally the holy spirit answered your prayers mm-hmm. and uh and that was that was kind of a, a a important for you guys to see that that does that does help but um you know the timing and everything with addiction um take that out of the mix because that's not going to really match up to what mm-hmm. you know, i mean ever when when you're thinking that it will Mm -hmm. Uh, so I, I, yeah, I thought that you guys did a really good job doing that. Mm -hmm. So if we fast forward to where you are now, six years, um, being clean, what's helpful today and not helpful today, um, as we, as a family continue to walk alongside of you, I mean, we're all still learning. I know you are too, and we want to keep learning. So what are good questions for me to ask or questions not to ask, or what can I be doing better as, as your sister to help you keep fighting? Well, um, I guess asking me how I'm doing is, is, is nice and fine, but, but be ready for the answer. Mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. if I say I'm struggling and, and, uh, and everything, just, just understand that that's, that's part of this, this, this journey that I'm on, mm-hmm. um, just be ready for that answer. But, but no, encourage me to, to listen to John. Um, mm-hmm. that's, that's my sponsor and, and, and do what he says, you know, pray for me to, to ask for God's will um, and, and ask for the power to carry it out because mm-hmm. that's really what I need to be doing. Because I'll tell you this, Dwight's will, um, didn't get me very far. Mm-hmm. So, you know, mm-hmm. encouraging me to, to, to stay close to the Lord, um, and, and the fellowships that I have, my church fellowship and also my meetings fellowship, uh, encouraging me to find that balance and, and, and everything, because I'll tell you what, without recovery, everything in my life will go away very quickly. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just encourage and ask, but be ready for the answer. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, Eric and I, um, we're in the midst of parenting teenagers. We have been for almost 10 years now, and we still have a number of years left with teenagers in our home, and most of our friends have teenagers. And these are challenging years. And as you mentioned, um, some of your struggles started during your teenage years, and it's just a really difficult stage in life um, within the family structure. So I'm just wondering... Um, if you have any insight into what a parent of a teenager should say or do if they think their kids um, are starting to drink or use drugs. And I mean, I know there's a lot of things to factor in, but from your perspective, is there is there some sort of a crucial step um, that needs to be taken early on? Yeah. So if, if you have a, a young person that you're, you're that's a loved one that that might be drinking or you know, using drugs or you find something or you smell something on their breath or, or whatever. Um, understand that, that, you know, that might just be dabbling. That might just be exploring or peer pressure or, or things like that. Because I had some close friends that absolutely made every choice that I did. And that's kind of what I was talking about before with, with addiction and, and people thinking it's choices. I had close friends that, 
that did every single drug, the, the amount, the frequency that I did, but for some reason addiction um, had its grip on me. And then now today they don't suffer from addiction. They, they just stopped. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, understand that, that it could grip them. Um, they could be the one that, that addiction grips later on in life. And this could be the start of a long, painful journey. But if, if I had one little bit of advice to tell them, like you asked, it would be, don't, don't just tell them not to do something, tell them why, you know, don't just say, Hey, don't drink or smoke or, you know, take pills that, that, that aren't prescribed to you or whatever, but, but tell them why, tell them, take them to a, a meeting sometime and see what, what that road can lead to, hmm. you know, have them talk with somebody that's, you know, either in active addiction or in recovery and, and they will be glad to, to, to share their, their story with you, I'm sure. But, but don't just tell them don't, tell them why also. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really helpful. And as I think through all that we just talked about regarding our family, Dwight, and getting things right and wrong, and after all that's happened over the years in our particular family, um, you have a good relationship with dad and with mom, and they do with you. And how in the world were you able to preserve that or, or restore that? Well, I didn't necessarily blame. I tried to t- stay as blameless as possible. Um, sure, there was things that, that I wished. You know, I wish that they didn't want me to, to be like you and my brother, um, like a mix, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And they would have just allowed me to be my own person. But, but I really tried to stay blameless. I, I knew that you know, God would never forsake me. Um, that was a promise that he had. Um, the teachings that mom and dad in the church uh, that taught me growing up, I really stuck to them, even if I didn't understand and, and uh, sometimes had some unbelief. Um, how I preserved that would, would I, I, I don't, I don't know. I think that was a little bit of the Holy Spirit kind mm-hmm. of intervening and, and conflicting and, and, and things and helping at times. But um, I always apologized. You know, even if I would do something that I wasn't proud of to them, like took money or, or disappeared for a while, um, I would always apologize. And I think they kind of like that. But um, really, I don't know, because uh, mm-hmm. there's a lot of people that, you know, hop on the road to recovery that their family and loved ones and people that they knew, friends and, and whatever else, want nothing to do with them, even though they're recovering. Mm-hmm. So there, there's that chance, too. So yeah, yeah. Um, I I think that that mom and dad's faith really kind of helped them get through the times that they were frustrated and and the times of unknowing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm glad. I'm grateful. Yeah. I don't take for yeah. granted that we still have a relationship today. Me too. I really respect you, Dwight, for the way you've worked really hard at that. And I do respect mom and dad for how much they have um, devoted to prayer and, and to um, continuing to to work on their relationship with you as well. And our whole family has been able to, um, to press on and, um, and stay, um, together. And I'm really, really thankful for that. Um, well, let's talk quickly about fighting for joy in the workplace. I I feel like you're a good one to ask about this because you've got a difficult job and you mentioned you, you work on the Indian reservation and you coach and you teach and, um, even at the college level. And so, um, I don't know if you want to tell a little bit more about what your day-to-day looks like within the classroom, but I guess the the biggest question I have is just um, what does fighting for joy look like for you on a daily basis at work and seeing brokenness and, and working in a difficult environment? Yeah. So, so 
now that I'm six years in and, and, you know, have a job that I'm proud of and everything, the fight for joy is a little bit different than what it was when I was actively in addiction. But, um, this is a tough job that I have. Uh, I don't know if you know much about Indian reservations and this and that, but, but there is a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of drug and alcohol use. Uh, there's things that, you know, poverty level, um, you know, limited resources, uh, you know, living conditions, abandonment, uh, a lot of things that I see that that's hard for me to see. But Mm -hmm. at the same time, it, I, there's no question in my mind that it is God's will for me to be in the job and to influence the people that I'm, that I'm influencing today. Mm-hmm. And, and he gives me strength to, to carry on. There's times that where my jaw drops, I, I, you know, my eyes open up, I can't believe it, mm-hmm. but it really doesn't affect me too much because there's always something else that, that, that happens too. So um, it, 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 the fight for joy for my job is making a change in somebody's life. Mm -hmm. They can't necessarily say, Hey, you don't know what it's like, um, going through addiction and living under the bridge and, and, you know, being penniless and, and this and that, because I was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, So then that's kind of the end that I need. And, and also, you know, with sports, because that's some of these, uh, some of the thing or some of the kids, that's the only thing that they have in their life. That's that's positive. Mm-hmm. And me growing up and playing sports and had the opportunity to have different coaches and things and learning those sports is another avenue that I take. But uh, my fight for joy is, is, is really trying to change. And I'm not going to change the world here, but to make a difference in somebody's life. Mm-hmm. I see that from time to time. And that gives me just a little bit more oomph to keep going. Yeah. Yeah, for sure, Dwight. And I see that. Um in your influence there, the ways that you're able to help and mentor and build into them and love on them and relate to them. And I, I think it's true that when people walk through hard stuff, it can just lead, lead them down a unique path in life and redirect time and energy into a career or a ministry that they wouldn't be doing otherwise. I mean, this podcast has certainly done that for me. I know your work there at the Indian Reservation is doing that for you. And, um, it's definitely um, a way to continue to help ourselves, um, you know, press on and fight for joy, but also to um, to really help and serve other people um, as they do the same. So I'm glad I'm glad God has you there. Um, well, let's talk a little bit about grief um, and just what our family's been through these past few years. Um, I mean, first, I just want to say that you, uh, you know, as my younger brother really provided a unique help for me. Um, with Jackson when I was parenting him. I, you know, because of all that you'd walk through, your perspective was always so helpful. And I remember a number of key times when I called you and asked for input and perspective um, as I was struggling as a young mom. And especially with Jackson, I just feel like you helped me to see what was important and not important. So thank you for that. And then you were a big help to both Eric and me when we lost Jackson. Um, I mean, you've always been just a wonderful Uncle Dwight and all of our kids love you so much. And our brother Merritt is an amazing uncle too, to both my kids and your kids. Um, But with Jackson being born when you were still a teenager, you just really seemed to connect with him in a special way. And you were close to him and you guys went fishing together and grabbed McDonald's, helped grandpa together. You were always making each other laugh. And I'll always remember and treasure just the sweet ways that you listened to him and asked him good questions and took time for him. And 
he just he really adored you Dwight and um, you guys had a special relationship even in the midst of some of your darker days of addiction and I really remember you know how often Jackson wanted to pray for you too I, we would ask the kids who do you want to pray for tonight and Jackson usually said Uncle Dwight and so it's been helpful to me in grief when you tell me that you miss him because I know you do and um, we've just appreciated that you haven't been afraid to talk about grief even now years later and about the void that Jackson's death um, has left and it's just meant a lot to me and to Eric so thank you um, Dwight for all of that um, but I, I do remember you telling me that having a family member die was kind of one of the things that you didn't know if you could handle in life um, especially as you fought to stay clean so when Jackson died um, shortly after you began um, your journey, I mean, how did you deal with his death and how how did it tie into your fight for for joy? Well, thank you. And I love Jackson. Um, never had a, a, a younger brother and he was the, the closest thing that I had to that. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, so in step one, I was talking earlier about the steps there. There's things called reservations and they, there, there's a time where you just have to list them all. Basically things that if, if, if it were to happen that you would be concerned if, if you were going to be able to stay clean or not. And mm -hmm. I remember putting death of loved ones and I, I remember putting Jackson's name down and, and all my other nieces and nephews and, and, and everything else. And by me going through that step with John, um, I'm glad that it, we did that before it happened, because mm -hmm. as soon as that happened, John knew mm -hmm. that one of those things where Dwight knew if it would happen, he didn't know if he could stay clean or not. So by doing that, John was there. He, you know, went to the funeral. He, he went to the, the visitation. You know, he was around. He was there the the you know I, I went right to his house mm -hmm. i mean you know right afterwards like i was still on rocky ground and and he was just there mm -hmm. so so some of those things that that i talked about those steps that that and how important they are um that's just an example um because there has to be some sort of of understanding of a sponsor and and myself of, of when the times are that, that, that are dangerous. And, and of course, losing a loved one is one of those times, but at least he knew that by us working together and, and, and thank goodness he was there for me, yeah. um, you know, for months after that until I kind of, you know, started the grief process and things. So mm -hmm. uh, I was very, very, very grateful that, that he was there for me. Yeah. And that's a great example too, of just showing the importance, like you said, of, reaching out and letting people in and um, finding that community of people that you can be vulnerable with and open with and share with so that, yeah, they, they know how to respond and help in a way that is actually helpful. So, um, and death and loss, I mean, it changes a family and it changes us as people. And um, do you have any specific way that you feel like um, Jackson's death has changed you or maybe how it affects you as a dad? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I sure miss him. Mm -hmm. um, but it's it's basically re his death has reassured to me that we do live in a broken world mm -hmm. um, where there's pain and there's suffering and there's loss and there's grief. And there's there there's times where, you know, unbelief and just 
being upset with with God and and how things are going, even if we are believers and trying to be as righteous as possible. But things things like that that happen just prove that that this world is is not what we should bank on. Yeah. This this isn't it, you know. Um, and and by him dying, um, just reassured that to me. Yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Well. We've been talking about some really big and heavy things and um, fighting for joy through the serious and dark things in life. But let's end by just having you share about some of the simple joys in your life. I've I've enjoyed doing this with some of my guests. And so if you can think of two or three things that you're really loving right now, little things that are bringing you joy, I would love if you would share them. Yeah. So right now I'm really busy with work and I'm, I'm, I enjoy what I do every time, you know, on my, on my commute to work, I'm excited to get there. Um, very busy with that. And, and, and that's exciting, but, um, more than anything, it's, it's my little family. Uh, it's my awesome wife that, uh, you know, has helped me bring two little amazing boys into this world and, and to see them grow and to see them prosper and to see their personalities start to come out. Um, that, that brings joy to my heart. Um, Mm -hmm. at the same time with seeing that, I understand kind of the Lord's will for my life and seeing, you know, him, his will, and just me and his will by seeing my, my son or or my, my boys and, and, and how I work with them and what I want for them. And, and that's just kind of interesting to see, but, um, no, I, I just, my little family and, and church, I'm part of the worship team at church. I love music. I love cooking, food, uh, doing all those kind of things. Cigars is kind of my new thing. That's about as risque as I get anymore. Um, cause it, you know, you always have to have one thing, I guess, but, uh, mm-hmm. um, yeah, just, just passions would be my family. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, I just love the, the, the joy that they bring to me. Well, me too. And, um, and Dwight, I'm just, I'm so proud of you. You're seriously one of my most favorite people in the whole world. And, um, I know people will be so helped and encouraged by this podcast. You are such a good communicator. And I'm reminded of that again here as you've shared and, um, just really respect the ways that you have, um, turned your life into serving other people and, and being there for, for others who are, who are struggling and, and you've been such a support for me as I've gotten this podcast started. Um, the email that you sent to me after you listened um, to that first episode, I re- I just treasure that email. So thank you for cheering me on. And thank you today for being my guest and for being open and real and vulnerable. And um, like I said, I just I know this episode is going to help people and you are living proof that there is hope and we can all be encouraged by the ways that you've pressed on and you've kept fighting for joy and are continuing to fight for joy. And I'm just, I'm so thankful you're my brother, Dwight. And I thank God for you and, and for your life. I, I just love you so much. Well, thanks, Jody. I love you too. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I like, I, I really do. Like you said, I, I really hope this is helpful for somebody. Um, I just hope that they reach out. Yeah, I hope so uh, too. I'm here waiting. All right. Thank you, Dwight. Thank you so much for listening today. I would love for you to find me on social media. You can connect with me and others who are listening by finding my Fighting for Joy podcast page on either Facebook or Instagram. You can also reach me at fightingforjoypodcast at gmail.com.
Podcasts have been such a lifeline for me these past few years in grief and one of the top ways that my soul is recharged and encouraged on a weekly basis. I truly hope that this podcast will do the same for you.